We're going to start in Matthew 5. We've been through this a few times before. This is kind of the setting where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. So before we take off, we're going to go kind of interactive for a bit. So for those of you that don't like this, it's okay. But for some of you, participation is required. Okay, it's just going to be a thing. But what gives you the impression, like when you are at work, when you're driving in your car and you're going to different places, what gives you the impression that someone is blessed? What kind of things stick out? This is the interactive part. Demeanor, the way that they act, the way they carry themselves. Yeah, very true. What else? The peace with which they talk. Yeah. What else? Joy. Good. What is that? Health. 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 They have good health. Yeah. Health we kind of associate with blessing, right? Jeez. A nice car. Yeah. Someone's driving a hot rod car. It's like, oh yeah, that dude has got God's blessing on him. <laughs> yes. So here, let's have a little bit of fun at this. We'll kind of switch gears a little bit. We'll look around the room. So look at your neighbor. Look across the way and kind of take everybody in. Like who would you say is most worthy of God's blessing? It's kind of a dangerous question, but like this is good. Like we're not gonna say like who's not. Everybody. Yeah. But is it true? Is everybody worthy of it? And here's here's what I'm trying to get at. Because in a lot of ways, our uh, world today is much like the world of the Bible. There were inherent expectations as far as who deserved. God's favor, just like there are today. So if you're good and you do all the right things and you do all the right stuff, then naturally God should bless you, right? And so as an example of this, there's a a friend of mine. He was in a home group with us for a while. This is a number of years ago before Southside. But he was in a home group with us, and God was doing some really cool things in his life. He was doing really cool things in his marriage and in their, their family structure. And it was just really exciting to see all these things. And and just how they were growing. And then I met him, like we kind of lost touch. So it was probably a year or two ago. I saw him again. And he was this angry person, just mad. Like super angry with God because his wife was having a lot of health issues. And there's a lot of struggle and things going on in their home. A lot of things that they were dealing with. And he was just mad. He was angry. He was fed up. He had it with church. He was done with it. Because there was this expectation that because he was going to church and he was reading his Bible and praying and doing all the right stuff, that now like God should be blessing him and giving him this life of comfort. He shouldn't have to struggle. He shouldn't have to have these uh, sicknesses and things involved in his life or in his wife. And there was just this idea that things should be okay, right? And how many of you, like when you're sick or something, you think, why God? Like, what am I doing? And it's not like, it's just something that's kind of inherent in us. And sometimes I'll hear somebody like say like, 
well, I might come to church and see if that works for me. Like it's some kind of fix-it tool because we think if we just do the right stuff, then God's going to do something and he's going to give us some favor, right? And so that's kind of how things were uh, back in the Bible days. There's just this expectation that if we do the right stuff, things are going to work out okay for us. So a little story. While we were in Thailand last year, our, our, we had a church Thai team. Uh, we went into the slums of Bangkok, and there's this missionary there named Ivan, who uh, he does ministry with the, the poorest of the poor. And this isn't the first time I had been with Ivan, but, and I kind of knew what to expect, but I realized as we entered his space, like there's this back area where the couches are and all this stuff is, and I realized as I'm entering there, like there's this nasty, dirty couch that everybody kind of sits on. And it's just like gross. And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, there's homeless people in there. Like, God knows when they're able to bathe, last. They probably never change their clothes, and they're sitting on here. And I don't want to sit on this couch. That's just gross, right? And so later that night, uh, we're out into the neighborhood because we're, uh, we're handing out little bags of food to people on the streets. Um, and the idea is like we're going to bless them and show them God's love and maybe start a conversation with them. And you realize that like, I'd say like, Sawadee Cup? And that's like the extent of my tie. So like obviously we weren't relying on me or people like me to do that, but there's somebody in each group that could speak Thai. But we wanted to show them God's love in, in, as we were doing this. And as the night gets darker, there are like literally hundreds, hundreds of homeless people littered all up and down the streets. They're sleeping on the sidewalks, and you begin to see why some of them are there. Like some are lame, and they don't have the capacity to work. They don't have the ability. There are some that had like nasty, funky things growing out like on their bodies, just this grotesque, nasty thing. They had funky skin diseases that were just really hard to look at, honestly. And so while we're walking there, and I have a smile on my face, and hopefully it's a gentle and welcoming smile, like I'm realizing there's some things going on inside me that I'm really struggling with. Because I was painfully aware of my discomfort. Because I was uncomfortable being with these people. And while I was able to be there and talk to them and hand out bags of food, as I was doing this, like I saw Jesus right there. It was an image of Jesus in my mind, like as he's sitting there right with them, living with them just as they were. And I realized in my heart that I could not imagine doing that. Couldn't imagine doing it. So we're going to come back to the story in a little bit. But let's review a little bit. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded sermons in the Bible. And Pastor John touched on this a few weeks ago, but the setting of the scene where we talked about this mountain, which really isn't a mountain. It doesn't look anything like Everest or the Himalayas. It's more like this big giant hilltop, like surrounding hills all over. Very beautiful, but it's different. But this setting evolves from the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 4, where it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And I think that's important to note that. He's announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. 
Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns also called the Capitalists, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. And so Jesus, in chapter 5, he's surrounded by his disciples, but all around him are the crowds that have gathered from all over the land. Now, Decapolis was a Greek area that was settled by Alexander the Great. And so there's a lot of Greek, a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish type people in here. And then we have people from Galilee who are, are very Jewish in contrast, right? And so we have a mix of people, both Jews and Gentiles, both religious and not religious, pure and not pure, holy and not holy, those who followed the scripture, the Torah, and those who did not. This whole mix of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And there are likely people in this crowd who would have been taught from birth that in order to follow God, they could not have any contact whatsoever with those people. And it's in this setting that Jesus begins to teach. And the Sermon on the Mount opens up with what we have come to call the Beatitudes. And as we learned, each Beatitude is a paradox. It's a paradox. It's a contradictory statement that is true. Contradictory statement that is true. And these statements of Jesus are statements that are unnatural. They are completely radical. They are countercultural. They are counterintuitive. And I believe that is one of the reasons why Jesus was so controversial. That's why he was so controversial. And honestly, the reason I think some of us have become so comfortable with Jesus is because we failed to grasp and really understand and the depth of some of the things that he said. And we've, we've rationalized it in our minds and we have explained it away so that it's more easier for us to accept but the first beatitude we're going to spend some time in, and we're going to talk about this today and we're going to spend some time in it next week, is this small thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You notice I didn't say blessed? Why do we say blessed? Like, we get to church, we start reading the beatitudes, and everything is blessed. Like, what is that? Like, I don't get it. I feel so blessed today. Right? That's just weird. So I'm, I'm going to say blessed. Hopefully I don't offend anybody. But I'm going to say blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in the verses leading up to this, Jesus is demonstrating this message. He's demonstrating this. As he heals those who are sick and as he casts out demonic spirits, he is acting with God's rule from the heavens right there in that moment meeting the desperate needs of the people around him. And as he spoke, not just to his disciples, but to all who would hear the availability of the heavens right there. And Jesus was speaking directly to those who had just received from him. So he could point out those in the crowd whom the kingdom was poured out to right there through his hands and through his voice and through his heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. So let's pause for a minute. Because if you're like me, if you're like me, a lot of times you read scripture and you'll just kind of read it and, okay, that's familiar. You just kind of keep reading and go on. You don't really think about what you're reading, right? Or try to understand it. Or am I the only one that does that? I am, huh? You bunch of spiritual wackos. 
I'm the only one. I don't believe you. But that's okay. But I want you to imagine here, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase poor in spirit? What kind of images come to mind? What does that mean, the poor in spirit? Sad. Broken. Yeah. Good, so I'll get all bankrupt. Yeah. Good. So this comes, the Greek word for this, for poor, is potahos. Are you guys impressed with me? Because I knew a Greek word. Yeah. Yeah, I studied. Um, Potahos. And it comes from a verb meaning to shrink, cower, or cringe. As beggars often did in that day. And even today you'll find beggars in the middle of Thailand and probably even here in the U.S. where you'll see them crouching on the street begging as people walk by and they'll have one hand out for alms and the other they're just kind of hiding their face because they're completely ashamed. And that's kind of the picture that we get in this word, in this phrase, poor in spirit. So when Jesus says poor in spirit, he's speaking of a spiritual poverty that corresponds to the material poverty of one who is patahos. They have nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so what does this actually mean? And and what kinds of, like, who is Jesus talking to? And some commentaries suggest that it means to be humble-minded, We need to be humble, to recognize our need for God. Someone who has seen the sin and corruption of his own heart and acknowledged his inability to please God. And you know, while I believe this is a good thing, I would submit that I don't don't believe that Jesus is speaking this. I don't think this is the image he's trying to project when he says these words. Because in essence, when we do something like that, uh, what we're doing is adding our own reasoning to a text that simply is not there. It doesn't really there, but we feel like we have to rationalize it so that it makes sense to us. Like surely God could only bless people if they really understand how bad they are. If they really understand how much they suck, then God can bless them. But not before that. And so when we do that, we try to hyper-spiritualize it, put a spiritual tryst on it, and we end up flipping the intended meaning on its head so that it becomes something that we work towards a condition that we strive for so that somehow we can be considered worthy of God's blessing. But it wasn't really meant to make sense, right? It's a paradox. It's a paradox. It's kingdom thinking, which goes beyond our natural economy. It completely baffles our minds sometimes. Just how can this be? It doesn't make any sense. And so in explaining this verse, there's one text I read that suggests that we must become poor in spirit before we can become rich in God's blessings. But I think that misses it because being poor in spirit is not a good thing. It's spiritual poverty. It's spiritual bankruptcy. It's not noble. It's not praiseworthy. It's not something we should ever try and attain to. The poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus precisely because in spite of their miserable condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon them now by the grace of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven now. 
According to Dallas Willard, Jesus was saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros. The zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient. The spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. And these are people who have zero spiritual qualifications or abilities, and most people would rule them out simply because they are undeserving. And Jesus would say, yes, but... And so in his day, it was women and prostitutes and beggars, the blind, the lame, lowly fishermen, Samaritans whom the Jews hated, slaves and thieves and those on the outside who were looked down upon, condemned and ridiculed. And N.T. Wright explains that this is an upside-down world or perhaps a right-way-up world. And Jesus is saying that with his work, it's starting to come true. It's starting to come true. There's another writer that says, the creator of the universe whom you have been convinced is for all the people who do it right doesn't work that way. You don't earn it. You simply stand in awe of it because it is an announcement. It's an announcement. It's not a teaching or an advice. It is an announcement of God's love. And so the Beatitudes are not commands. They're not how-tos in order to inherit salvation or eternal life. They're announcements. And Jesus is making a proclamation. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit because, because God is with you. Because God is with you. You know you didn't do anything to deserve it, but you are blessed simply because God is for you right there as you are. You're blessed because that is the kind of God that I am. And so we ask ourselves, is this something that we see modeled in Scripture? Do we see this in the life of Jesus? And I think we do. Here's some examples. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story of the posture of a father to the prodigal. God is the waiting father who runs to the returning son. And the father embraces the one who has squandered everything and completely dishonored his name. He told his father, I wish you were dead so I can have all your money. And he runs to him. And you might be thinking, like, wait a minute, but, but the son was coming back and he was repenting, confessing. And yes, but God didn't wait for any of that. He saw his son. He lifted up his robe, looked like a doofus, and ran to him as he wrapped his arms around him and embraced him. That's this image that we get. In Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers on his way to Jerusalem, the kind of people that nobody wanted who were banished from common cities and villages because they were lepers. They were unclean. Or as we read in Matthew 4, he healed everyone who came. Everyone. He didn't say, well, you've been really good today. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to heal you. And you, yeah, you didn't do it. And how you doing? He didn't do anything like that. He just healed them all. He healed them all. In Luke, I'm sorry, in John 4, Jesus goes out of his way to go through Samaria, a place and people that the Jewish people despised. They hated them. They were considered heretics because they believe something different. They called them dogs. And Jesus approaches a woman at the well, an adulteress who had multiple husbands, and he offers her living water. In Luke 19, Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus, this wretched tax collector, and someone who was despised by all the Jews because he had gotten rich off of them. And he was deemed a thief and a traitor to his people. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. 
And this is the same Jesus who told, or uh, the same Jesus of whom the Pharisees asked his disciples, he said, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Because he often ate with tax collectors and Pharisees, or uh, sinners, tax collectors and sinners. This is the same Jesus who invited prostitutes and tax collectors to become his followers. This is the same Jesus who welcomed a thief and a murderer to become one of his 12 disciples. A thief who would later betray him to his very death. This is the kind of Jesus we're talking about. And I want you to note some of the cultural forces that work in these stories. There's a lot of things going on. The contempt for sinners, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The hatred for the heretics, like the Samaritans, which had, they had a long history with the Jews, uh, of just a lot of bad blood between them. The fear and the distaste for the lepers. And these are all just normal in this time. And so my question for us is what are some of the cultural forces that work here in our time right now? Like what are some of the things that we just kind of take for granted because that's just the way things are. That's all we've ever known. I don't know anything different so I don't even think to look inside of that frame, that worldview. And how have those cultural forces right here blinded us to the heart of Jesus? Because here's the reality. Where I am, I am so realizing that when I read Scripture, when I read the Scripture from the Bible, I am looking at it from a lens that is influenced by my background, my upbringing, um, where I am culturally, all of these things. And this will probably irritate the snot out of you guys, or some of you. But I recognize I'm looking at it from a place of white privilege and power. And I look at it a certain way. And if you go to Asia, you go to Africa, you go to South America, you go into the African-American neighborhood here in our country, they're going to look at it a little differently because things are going to pop out to them that we don't normally see. And it's not because it's not true. It's because it speaks to them in a different way. Right? And just one easy example we can look at from the past that's easy to look at now is slavery. 200, 300, 400 years ago, nobody really... Slavery was just a thing. That's what we did. It didn't matter. And, and the Bible didn't condemn it. Paul said, slaves obey your masters. There were rules for how to treat slaves in the Old Testament. So it never condemned the practice. And so we just kind of took it. It was okay. Yet, all through Scripture, God talks about the oppressed and freeing those who are bonded. It's just, it's a different thing. And so now we can look at it and go, aha, I see that all through, but they didn't in that time. Or some of them actually did because some of the ones who were went to, who uh, preached to the slaves in that time were not allowed to preach to them about Moses and about the Exodus because that would draw up things in them. So what kind of cultural blinders do we have? And I think that's important. Because I want to get rid of all of those kinds of things when I read scripture so that God can speak clearly. Marsha Mullinex has passed on a shared a story of how a, a Muslim heard the story of Jesus, right? And he described how life before Jesus was like looking, he was like being in a pit. 
and looking at the sky and the world and only being able to see this little part of the world, right? And then now that he knew Jesus, he was like he was up out of that pit and he could look all around and he could see all around and how his picture, his idea, his image of God was so much bigger now because of that. He said, I would never go back to that. Why would I ever want to do that? And I believe that we still do that sometimes in our own understanding of Christianity, because we see God through this particular lens that has been influenced by our past and our present and our culture surrounding, and it inevitably filters out so much of who he is and his heart toward us. But I believe God's heart is bigger than we think it is. I believe that his love would absolutely blow our minds away if we were really able to grasp it. And I believe his grace for us and for others would literally make us weep in awe if we truly understood it. So who are the poor in spirit? If Jesus were talking today, what images might enter his mind? Who would he think of? If we looked at some concrete examples, I think the poor in spirit today would be the homeless, would be the lame, the foster child, the, the victim of human trafficking, the, and the buyer who pays for her services. Victims of domestic abuse and even the abuser, the illegal immigrant, the refugee, the person suffering from mental illness, the addict, the drug dealer, the single mom, the deadbeat dad, the woman who had an abortion, the homosexual and the transgender person the Muslim or the Buddhist, those in generational poverty who have no idea what it even means to live a normal life because poverty is the only thing they've ever known. Those who have messed up time and time again and burned up so many bridges that they're convinced they aren't worth anything to anyone and on and on and on. The ones that everybody else thinks are unworthy of their attention or compassion. The poor in spirit are for all those who didn't do anything to deserve it. But heaven has come. Heaven has come. And the kingdom of heaven is yours because God is for you. God is for you. And for some of us, I think if we're honest, this is a little unsettling. might be a little uncomfortable. And some of us might be pushing back against it, thinking, no, God is, God is for the pure. God is for those who have repented. God is for those who pray and read their Bibles and go to church and tithe. God is for those who always try to do things right. That's who God is for. Not for the rest, not for the other ones. And I think this is exactly where the kingdom, what the kingdom of heaven should do to us. It forces us to wrestle because the kingdom invades our spaces. It challenges all of our preconceptions and everything that we think we know. And it confronts our bias and our prejudices. That's the kingdom. That is the kingdom. And the reality of Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then perhaps he might also be saying, cursed are the spiritually arrogant those who think they have attained to something on their own, who look down on the zeros, for the kingdom of heaven is not theirs. Because Jesus continually challenged the religious leaders, the ones who 
also continually challenged and judged and condemned other people. And he, Jesus told those who would listen, and he's probably pointing to the Pharisees as he does this, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And for those of us who might be struggling with this, I, uh, I think Jesus wants to remind us and simply saying to us, like, look for my heart. Look for my heart and listen. Listen and hear the words of Scripture. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And this is how God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is his posture. And the question I think for us is, how will we respond? How will we respond? Because the Christian life isn't just about going to church and hearing or reading the Bible, but it's about responding to what God is doing in our hearts and in our minds. What do we do with this? And so back in Thailand, we come back to the story. It's nighttime, right? And I'm standing in the streets. I'm surrounded by the homeless, lying and sitting all around. Some are huddled together. Some people are alone. Some are disfigured. All of them are dirty. All of them are dirty. All of them are rejected by society. All of them with a history and a story that nobody gives a flippin' rip about. All of them are ones that I would typically choose to avoid because it's, it's uncomfortable to be with them. They're not like me. They're not in my normal circles. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. And I see this image of Jesus sitting right there with them, like clear in my mind, simply living with them, eating with them, and being with them right there. And I begin to feel the shame just swell up as I'm realizing this ugliness in my own heart, thinking, you disgusting person. And right as that happens, I sense an invitation. An invitation that is filled with love. An invitation that is filled with compassion. An invitation that simply says, come. 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 Follow me. It instantly melted the shame. Instantly melted all of that away. And I said, come and follow me. So where do we go? The question I'd have, I guess, is where is this intersecting in your life right now? Because God is here. God's working. He's doing things. He brings things up, images, thoughts, patterns. Where is this intersecting? 
And maybe you feel like a spiritual zero. And maybe you feel unworthy of God's love. Maybe you feel like you've never been able to do anything right. Like nobody cares. Like what's the point of living? Like you have nothing that you can offer God. And Jesus is extending an invitation to you. He says, it's okay, come. My hands are open. My hands are open. My arms are open. To all of you, just come. Or maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you feel like you can never do enough. You can never be good enough. You're not reading your Bible as much as you should. You're not praying as much as you should. You're not involved as much as as you should be. And it's just like, no matter what, it's it's never good enough. And you feel like God is angry with you. And he's just, he's had enough of you. And he's just disgusted with you because you just can't measure up. And that's not the kind of God that, that's not who he is. And that's one of those lenses, I think, sometimes we see God in completely the wrong way. And maybe he wants you to know, like, I love you, not for what you can do for me, not for anything that you've done, but just because that's who I am. That's the kind of God I am, that I love you. Quit trying to measure up. Just come. And maybe, maybe you're struggling with this and you're kind of pushing back against it and maybe there's a face that comes to mind of type of person that you really don't think is worthy or deserving type of people or group maybe and it's like, no, no. Or maybe you sense some shame because you have some of the same things that I had. And God is inviting you. It's like, forget the shame, but come and be a part of what I want to do. Sure, experience my heart. Follow me. And love. Be extensions of my hands and my heart. Where is he saying? What is he saying right now? Because we're all in different places. And God just meets us where we're at. Which is so cool. Which is so cool. Sometimes we look down on others that haven't quite made it where we have. They haven't quite gotten to the level that we think we have, right? But God meets us where we are. So I'm going to pray. I invite you to pray with me. Uh, Father, Lord, I, we are grateful that you are a God who meets us where we are, who extends an invitation freely to all who will come, who blesses those who have nothing to offer, knowing none of us really do. But you're a God of gentleness, you're a God of compassion, you're a God of love. And you want us to know who you are. So God, I pray for everyone here who feels down, who feels like they're not worthy to follow, feel like they've done too much, their past is too messed up, and you can't possibly forgive them.
God, I pray that they would sense your love right now today in this room, that you would speak into their heart and their innermost need, that you would speak to their brokenness, and that you would be able to reach in and heal all of their wounds, all of the things that make them feel this way. For the church who think that living life with you is something that we have to measure up to and are constantly failing, God, I pray that you would take that idea inside of them and and heal it, that they would be able to see you as you truly are and be able to walk anew, a fresh life with you just because you want to connect and walk with us in relationship because that's the kind of God you are. And for everyone else here, God, I pray that we would allow you to expose our own stuff, our biases, our prejudices, all the things in us that keep us from loving the way that Jesus did. God, work in us. Thank you for being patient. For being patient and yet also exposing this thing is giving us a full measure of your grace and your truth. Lord, help us to live this out as you want us to, as sons and daughters of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.